Hi, welcome to Neurology Clinical Pearls. This is a podcast in which a Boston University neurology resident interviews an expert neurologist on a specific outpatient topic, covered in 15 minutes or less. The contents are meant for educational purposes and not for direct medical advice. Today, our resident is Lucas Horda, and he will be interviewing Dr. Caitlin Byrne, who is a movement disorder specialist. In this part one of two, they'll be talking about a general approach to tremor, including important elements of the history and exam and diagnostic studies to consider. Then they go on to discuss essential tremor and essential tremor plus. We hope you enjoy. So I think um, first thing would be, what is a tremor? So a tremor is any sort of involuntary movement that looks rhythmic. So it happens regularly. Uh, it's also oscillatory. So it tends to rotate around a central plane or uh, some people refer to it as an axis. I would say the one movement disorder that tends to get confused with tremor would be myoclonus. Um, and I like to think of myoclonus more as like a sudden, brief, almost lightning-like muscle contraction. It's the shortest lasting of the movement disorders. So a tremor, you tend to see more of a pattern to it, more of a regular rhythm. So what are the key things to ask in the history for a patient with tremor? So uh, ask about age of onset, any uh, temporal evolution of the tremor. So did it start all of a sudden or has it slowly changed over time? Ask about what position the tremor seems to be worst in. Is it worst at rest? Is it worst with activity? It's important to get a uh, sense of whether there's a family history of tremor, a sense of whether there's any improvement in the tremor with alcohol consumption. Get a good medication list and ask about toxin exposure. What medications commonly cause tremor? So things like Depakote, SSRIs, sympathomimetics, antipsychotics, and lithium are all prime suspects. What about toxic agents? What do you typically see? I would say that heavy metals are probably the uh, most common causes of tremor, so checking for things like mercury, lead, or manganese. Now moving on to the exam. What's the basic neurology exam that you do for every uh, patient with tremor, and how would you titrate that according to what you find? So look to see what parts of the body are involved with the tremor. Is the tremor predominantly in the upper extremities, the lower extremities, the head? Is it on one side of the body, both sides of the body? See if the tremor is worst when the patient is at rest or otherwise distracted. Uh, for this, I tend to have the patient put their hands in their lap, look me in the eye, and recount the months of the year backwards. I frankly don't care if they're able to name the months of the year, but I keep a close eye on their hands if there's any rest tremor that pops up. See if there's any tremor with posture. So I have the patients extend their hands out in front of them. Have them hold it there for a few seconds. You might find that there is what we call a re-emergent tremor, or it takes a second or two before the tremor kicks in. I also have them bend their elbows and hold their hands underneath their chin. Again, hold for a few seconds. See if the tremor comes back. I check to see if there's tremor with goal-directed movement. So easiest to do this on finger-to-nose testing. Tremor can sometimes get worse at the end target, right as they're approaching your finger or approaching their nose. 
I also tend to see if they have tremor when they're writing. I like them to do an Archimedes spiral, which is a spiral that starts in and kind of arches outward on a piece of paper. I have them draw it with their hand both off of the paper and on the paper, because depending on how bad the tremor is in both positions might point you to a certain diagnosis. Try to estimate the frequency of the tremor, whether this is less than 4 hertz, which would be a low frequency tremor, a medium frequency tremor at 4 to 8 hertz, or a high frequency tremor at 8 hertz. And then, of course, I look for any other signs of systemic illness or neurologic disease. And keep a close eye on any time the tremor might come out. So when you're doing a gait exam, see if the tremor reemerges. All right, great. Um, so I usually don't tend to order a lot of lab work for these patients. Um, is there any specific test that you typically order? Yeah, I agree. There's not a lot of necessary lab work that you need to get for these patients. I think it's reasonable to check a thyroid level if they haven't had electrolyte levels, LFTs, or a renal function panel recently. It's useful to get those just to make sure that there's no derangements that could predispose them to an enhanced physiologic tremor. If the history is suggestive, you can get heavy metal screening. And if the patient is young or you have... Uh, suspicion for Wilson's disease, it never hurts to send a copper in a ceruloplasm. Now, how do you organize the differential for tremor in your head? Um, usually what I think of is, is this essential tremor? Uh, and then I try to see if it fits or not. So how do you, how do you go about it? I think that's definitely the million dollar question. Uh, different people think about tremor in different ways. Some people like to break it down by um, position, whether it's a rush tremor or an action tremor. Some people like to break it down by frequency. I think a useful way to break it down is similar to what you were talking about, whether this is a essential tremor or not. So is this an isolated tremor disorder? So could this be an enhanced physiologic tremor, an uh, isolated focal tremor in the head or the voice? Could this be an orthostatic tremor? Or are there other things on exam that might suggest that this is a dystonic tremor or a Parkinson's-related tremor or a Holmes tremor or myarrhythmia? So you've mentioned several different types of tremors. It sounds like they don't fit kind of cleanly into different categories. Um, but based on the exam, you, you told us that, you know, the first thing might be the differentiate between a rest tremor and an action tremor. And then within the action tremors, then there are your intention and kinetic and, um, and postural tremor. Does that sound about right as kind of a first step of categorization? Yes. This is certainly not a complete list of all the tremors that are out there. I feel like, you know, every, every year I'm reading about new forms of tremor. So uh, this is just a small smattering of the possible differential out there. Great. So having in mind that essential tremor is a particularly common disease, uh, maybe about 1% of the population, how do you di diagnose essential tremor? And what is essential tremor, actually? Yeah, so essential tremor, like you mentioned, is incredibly common. It is the most common movement disorder, uh, affecting, like you said, about 1% of the population. So in 2017, the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society got together and proposed a formal definition for essential tremor which I will read to you since I don't have it quite memorized. It's uh, isolated action tremor of both upper limbs with a duration of at least three years, 
with or without tremor of other locations, such as the head, larynx, or lower limbs, with an absence of other neurologic signs. Good, good. So if you, if you do find a patient to have essential tremor then, um, when would you start treatment? So treatment for essential tremor is entirely driven by patient's quality of life. So I work very closely with the patient and I ask if they would like to start medications. Some patients have very severe tremor, but it doesn't affect their quality of life, and so I'm not going to push meds on them. Other patients might barely have a tremor, but they work uh, as, you know, police officers or artists, and their fine motor skills are important to them. So it's very much driven by the individual patient. So if you do decide to start treatment, um, what are the agents that you start as first line? So there are two medications that have class 1 evidence. The first is propranolol, and the second one is primidone. Um, and when you, when you start those agents, um, do you usually start them on a very low dose? Start low and go slow. Uh, so both of these medications have a tendency to cause dizziness, drowsiness. Propranolol, as you know, can cause alterations in heart rate. So I like to start with very low doses and ramp up. Uh, the therapeutic ranges are actually relatively high, but uh, some people find benefit from low dose. So for propranolol, I like to ask whether the patient would like an everyday medication that they take kind of preemptively, or if their tremor bothers them more situationally, I will start them with an as-needed immediate relief dose. And um when do you consider switching? What would be their threshold for going from one to the other? Again, it's entirely patient-dependent. So when they tell me that they're not getting a good benefit, I try to max out a therapy, but often we are limited by side effects. So we might be limited by low heart rate, we might be limited by drowsiness or sedation. So when the patient themselves feels like their benefit is waning, I consider either switching to the alternative first-line agent or adding it in addition. And when you start these medications, um, how do you set expectations with the patients? Do you tell them that the first couple are likely to work, or do you warn them that it might take several before we find the right agents? Excellent question. So I, I tend to tell patients that I'm optimistic that they will see some improvement with their tremor on the medication. Realistically, they probably won't see complete resolution of their tremor. They will probably always notice it, especially during periods of acute stress or anxiety. Um, but I tell them that my hope is that we can get it to a point um, where they are able to do uh, their activities of daily living and that their quality of life is not adversely affected. What about second-line agents? So, uh, unfortunately, second-line agents are kind of a wild, wild west, and there is not a lot of data uh, to support um, their use. Things like uh, anti-epileptic drugs tend to be favored, things like Topamax or Zanisamide or Gabapentin. Uh, benzodiazepines are also an option, although I tend not to favor them because these are lifelong diagnoses for patients. In addition to medication therapy, there are also adaptive devices that I encourage patients to use, especially as the tremor is getting worse. 
Uh, occupational therapy has access to these, but there are things like tremor-canceling spoons or weighted silverware or weighted pens. What about advanced therapies? Um, what, what are the indications? Yeah, so when patients have failed uh, the first-line medications, failed several of the second-line medications, when they aren't getting any benefit from those adaptive devices, then we start to consider these um, advanced therapies. There are two currently. The first one is deep brain stimulation to the VIM, which is in the thalamus. Uh, this can be done um, unilaterally or bilaterally. It can be adjusted over time. Um, it does require the patient to have brain surgery, and they do have a uh, like a battery pack stimulator that's in their chest about the size of a pacemaker. The second procedure was approved in 2016, and it is a focused ultrasound thalamotomy. They focus on the same part of the brain, so the VIM, and they do an MRI-guided lesioning of that part of the brain. Um, it's the same part of the brain that's uh, affected with the DVS, but it doesn't involve any cutting, drilling, or brain surgery. So these advanced therapies sound fairly drastic um, to treat what we consider a benign condition, um, even though obviously they can greatly affect patients' quality of life. Um, I'm just wondering what the threshold is for referring patients for these kind of therapies. So unlike Parkinson's disease, where I think we're tending to offer these advanced therapies earlier, um, I think we, we do tend to save these as the last resort for essential tremor. And in these patients, they, they really need to have demonstrated that the tremor adversely affects their quality of life, that it severely impairs their ability to carry out their functional tasks. Uh, with both of these procedures, bilateral um, intervention can lead to severe ataxia, can lead to severe dysarthria, uh, and to the point that we don't even allow focused ultrasound bilaterally. Uh, but there are side effects, and so it's important that this is kind of a procedure of last resort for patients. Good, good. And um, what about ET plus? Um, what is it? So ET plus is where you have essential tremor, but there's some other abnormal neurologic signs on the exam other than just the tremor. These are like soft neurologic signs of uh, unclear significance. So it could be like an impaired tandem gait, dystonic uh, posturing, uh, mild ataxia. It's not sufficient to give you a secondary diagnosis or you know an alternative diagnosis like Parkinson's disease, but it's enough to raise red flags. When I diagnose a patient with a central tremor. I tell them that at this point in time, their neurologic exam doesn't show any other signs or symptoms that would point me to an alternative diagnosis. There are times um, when essential tremor can kind of change or morph over time or other symptoms can become apparent. So I tell patients that I like to continue to follow and to see them in clinic every six months just to make sure that things don't change and that we continue to have the proper diagnosis. Thank you very much, Dr. Burridge, for coming here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.